This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Take out your Bible and turn in it to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. So if you're very new to the Bible, you just open it up, go to the New Testament. Starts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be in chapter 3. We are doing a series called Sent. And we're meditating on how Christ is sent from the Father. And this Christ, this Messiah who brings salvation, sends the Spirit onto a people who don't deserve the Spirit, who unite them to Jesus and supply a new righteousness and a new salvation and a whole new mission and a whole new purpose and reason for living. And what we've already seen in the series is that Jesus gives new things to us. Brand new things that we don't have before he comes in the story of salvation that God gives us in the Bible. And we've seen in chapter 2 that Jesus gives new wine and a better purification. It's brand new wine and it cleanses and purifies us in a way that we could never be purified or cleansed before. We saw in chapter 2 that Jesus gives a new access to the Father. He's the new meeting place of God. He's the temple. He's the place. And He's the context whereby we meet with God and we experience God in His presence. He's the better temple. We've seen in chapter 3 that He's the new substitute. The better sacrifice of atonement than the snake that was lifted up in Numbers 21 when Jesus is lifted up on the cross. That whoever puts their faith in him, the curse of God is removed from their life and they are freed from things that they could never free themselves from as a better atonement than the bronze snake lifted up. And today we're going to see that Jesus gives new life as a better baptizer than the famous John the Baptist. That's kind of the big idea of today. New life, better baptizer. So I'm going to read the end of John 3, which is going to be the focus of today's message, and then pray, and we'll look at how he's a better baptizer. Starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. 
Father, I ask that you would help us to see the importance of the words of Scripture. The words of Scripture set us free. The words of Scripture galvanize us into action. The words of Scripture take away false ideas that we have about God. And we ask, Lord, that the wrath of God and the love of God would be seen as clearly as it's portrayed by John the Evangelist in Scripture. Please help us open up our eyes to what you want us to see this morning. Please help me as I preach. Please open up our ears to hear your voice, Lord, and not those of a man. We need your help for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said Jesus gives new life as a better baptizer, but how is that? How is he superior to John the Baptist in John chapter 3? We've already kind of been introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1, but we see a furthering of a picture of John the baptizer in chapter 3. And Jesus is superior, I want to say this morning, in at least three ways, which is going to kind of serve as something of an outline for us, although this is a narrative and it can get a little clunky, but I don't want it to be. He's superior in at least three ways. His priority is superior than John the Baptist. His power is superior than the Baptist. And his position is unique and superior than John the Baptist. So he offers new life as a better baptizer in his priority, his power, and his position. So let's look at his priority first and let's just set the stage for the story in verse 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And it's important to see that John isn't usurping John the Baptist's ministry. He's actually fulfilling it in a very unique way. John the Baptist has said he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But here we see water baptism taking place. And it's important to see in chapter 4, verse 2, that the evangelist says that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. That's pretty cool because even though John... John is clear that Jesus has the authority to baptize and he is baptizing and he's taking over John the Baptist's ministry. He's encouraging his disciples to do the work just like he encourages us and puts us on mission and invites us into what he is doing. And it's happening right here in chapter 3 where they are baptizing as an extension, as a fulfillment of what John the Baptist has already been doing. And a reminder of John the Baptist is that he is the cousin of Jesus. So he's a family member. They're in the ministry together, but he's a family member and he's older than Jesus. And he was the surprise pregnancy to a barren couple, an old couple. They thought they could never have children. And here comes the surprise pregnancy and a grieving couple became a very happy couple with John the Baptist, although he was a strange one. So I don't know what it was like raising a John the Baptist in the home. Maybe some of you feel like you're raising a guy or a gal that's going to end up in a wilderness one day. But he was a surprise pregnancy. He was filled with the Spirit while in the womb. You, you wonder if God loves children and God loves babies. He sure does. John the Baptist was filled even while in the womb. He was prophesied by the angel Gabriel to his father that John the Baptist would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How would you like that kind of pronouncement over you or over your child? Well, that's what was prophesied about John the Baptist by an angel visible to his parents. And we will see that John the Baptist was imprisoned for speaking the truth regarding King Herod's sin. And he got his head lopped off because of it. 
In verse 24, John had not yet been put into prison. That's a part of the story. The evangelist, the writer here, wants to clarify that this is at, at a time when he's not been put in prison yet because everybody knows what happened to John the Baptist. He preached against sin and he suffered because of what he said and the truth that he told and the conviction that it brought. And, Jesus, and John said, John the Baptist said in verse 26 of chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm a baptizer, but I'm a baptizer with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. He said, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I shouldn't have taken his shoes off. This person is so much worthier than I am. I baptize you with water, but somebody else is coming that's going to be far better and fulfill everything that I'm doing in my ministry. But this doesn't sit really well with his disciples. There's a debate that happens in verse 25. There's a problem that occurs. A discussion arose, verse 25 says. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We're not real sure what the discussion is. He doesn't go into detail about what's the problem with purification. Did they think that John the Baptist purifying baptism was greater than Jesus's or Jesus was less? Or was there some other element that was a part of it? We don't really know. But whatever the controversy was over purification, a group of people come in verse 26 and there's a bigger problem going on with Jesus and his ministry of baptizing people and his disciples that are gathering now people that are following Jesus. And it's expressed in verse 26. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. They recognized the person. This is the one that John bore witness to, probably again and again and again. And they're saying, remember that one? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So there's a problem here because here we followed you, John. We've probably given up quite a bit in our repentance and in our turning to God. We aren't satisfied with the religious outward performance of Pharisees. We want a heart for God and we've left everything, friends and family, and maybe income. And we're following you and we're preaching with you and we're baptizing with you and we are with you. You're the focus of our ministry. We've left all and we've now followed you. And we see even in the very opening pages here of the Gospel of John, rivalry takes place and envy and jealousy just surfaces right out of their expression. It seems like it could be an envy and a rivalry. And it's possible to experience ministry rivalry. You could be linked arm in arm on the same mission together. You can be in the same church together. You can be in the same community group together. You can be in the same family together and experience this kind of jealousy, envy, and rivalry can rise up in your heart in a moment without you even realizing it was there whenever you see or experience somebody that is close to you that is more gifted than you. They're experiencing something of, uh, they have a gift. And maybe you have the gift too, but you're seeing that they are a little bit better than you at some things. And it causes in you a little bit of a reaction of fear, much like this disciple goes to John the Baptist and says, what's going on here? I'm afraid that something's being taken away from me here when we see other people that might be more gifted or maybe more fruitful than we are. 
it seems like the crowds are diminishing in size for John the Baptist and they're increasing in size for Jesus. And so it's, that's great if you're in the crowd with Jesus, but it's not so fun if you're in the crowd with John the Baptist. Our numbers are shrinking. What's going on? I mean, it's almost like your identity becomes threatened. I'm following you, John the Baptist, and your numbers are shrinking. What's happening? Should we address this? Do we need to go talk to the one that you bore witness to? That he needs, they need to come back over here and follow us some more? Happens when we see somebody that's more fruitful. Things just happen in a fruitful way in a particular area that you can be envious about. Or they're promoted over you. Or maybe you, you know of a, a church in town that's experiencing a unique blessing in a certain way and it creates in you a rivalry and an, an envy or, or jealousy. So it happens in ministry. It happens all the time in ministry. It happens while serving in the kingdom. If you're not a Christian and you're just checking out the gospel and, and curious about what people believe and why they're worshiping here, I hate to disappoint you that uh, sometimes rivalry and envy and jealousy doesn't just happen outside, but even inside the kingdom. But there's a broader application here because we know what jealousy does to our hearts and how it suffocates us when somebody else gets promoted over us or somebody else gets that job that we were pursuing, that we applied for, that we prayed for. Or we're, we're unemployed and somebody else gets a job with almost what seems to us as, as effortlessly. <clears throat> and while the rivalry and while the envy and the jealousy that can surface in those moments and the heartache and the hurt even, I mean, it can almost feel cruel when you've prayed and you've fasted and you've asked and you've kept on asking and uh, you've not been able to get pregnant while somebody else in a most effortless way is able to experience that. I know what that feels like. You can experience envy and jealousy if you have a lot of kids or different acting kids uh, and you're concerned about the behavior of your kids and you wish you had no kids or less kids or different kids. You can experience it in marriage and singleness. You can long to be married. You've prayed for it and somebody else. It just happens effortlessly, seemingly. Or you can be single. Or you could be married and you could long to be single. You can look with nostalgia back on the good old days. And there, there are never any good old days, right? <laughs> or when you're scraping by financially. And you're just trying to put food on the table. And somebody else is flourishing. Or you work twice as hard or three times as hard and something just comes effortlessly to somebody else. How do we respond to rivalry and envy when it surfaces in us? And what is John the Baptist? How does he respond to it? Well, it's interesting. Look at how he responds to this person who's really afraid. And that's the bottom line issue. It's just fear. There's, there's fear happening. Our boat is getting rocked. Water splashing up on to the boat, it's going to shrink without truth. If truth doesn't come in the fear, our boat can go down and sink. And John answers something just so helpful. I don't know what his inflection was in his voice. I don't know how he phrased it. But before the fear could rise among the group, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He inserts the truth 
of the sovereignty of God over our circumstances and over what's going on in our lives and says, God is in control here, not you and not me. God is the one who organizes. He's the one that gives. He's the one that drops things down into our laps. Wonderful things that you and I don't deserve and wonderful things that the other person doesn't deserve either. A person cannot receive even one thing, John the Baptist says, unless it comes Note the word, from heaven. It's got to come down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom all gifts flow downward in one direction to people who don't deserve even one thing. Deserve is probably the most dangerous word that's used in our culture today because we don't deserve anything. We do not deserve even one thing. And John the Baptist says, all things come as a gift direct, direct, directly from God in heaven. So everything that we have is from God and nothing else. And that can frustrate you. And that can free you. I think it freed Job when he lost his cattle and he lost his sheep and he lost his camels and he lost his children. You know the story when God allowed Satan to take it all away from Job. In verse 20 of that same chapter, you wonder what's going to happen to Job. Is he going to curse God? His wife appeals for him to do so. And it says, Job arose and tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And he says, the Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It can frustrate us as we're asking and we're asking faithfully and we're called to ask and we're called to ask faithfully and we're called to wait and we're called to dream and we're called to gather all the resources that we can for things that God puts on our hearts and encourage prayer for that. But there's also a freeing thing in knowing, along with Paul, that God's grace is sufficient for us when we don't get our answer to prayer. Or when God chooses to bless somebody else, or somebody gets a greater place of influence than we get. It's comforting to know that his power is perfected in our weakness. And we can rest in the one who gives and the one who takes away and say, Blessed be the name of the Lord and say with John the Baptist, even one thing is given from heaven to undeserving, hell-deserving sinners. So they're from God. And he goes on, look at verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. He, he reminds them, I've said it before and I said it again and I said it again. You, you, this is my ministry. My ministry was reminding you that I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He says, all gifts are from God. And let me remind you, because I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, that I'm not God. I'm not him. You're looking at me as if I can change things. You're looking at me with a glint in your eye as if I've got some special power to change you or change the circumstances or make things a little bit different magically. And John the Baptist says, I'm not God. 
I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Those free words can free you from what one commentator said is a Messiah complex. He said, John the Baptist, unlike us, doesn't have a Messiah complex. The Messiah complex is when you think, I can fix me, i.e., I'm a Messiah. I'm the Christ. I can fix it. Or we look to other people as Christ's, as Messiah's for us. You, surely you can fix me. If I can't fix me, then you can fix me. John the Baptist tells his disciples, I'm not the Christ. That also can be frustrating because you ultimately don't have the control of the authority of Christ over the circumstances of your life. But it's also a freeing thing to say, I'm not in charge here. I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. I serve him. I serve under him. He has the power to control, to redeem, to save, to heal, to work a miracle, to change me, to change you. And that's something of what we need to echo that to people who look to us instead of garnishing their attention and and saving that up for us to actually say, no, we're not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. We're not the Christ to our children. We're not the Christ to our students. We're not the Christ to our coworkers. We are not the Christ. And we aren't the solution to our problems either. That's exactly opposite. You walk out of here and go to Barnes and Nobles, go to the self-help section, and they're going to say, you are the solution to your own problem. Just get the right mechanism, the right technique, or the right motivation, and you can solve your own problems. No, you need to preach to yourself what John the Baptist says to his disciples. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And he can free me from things I can't be freed from. And he can heal things in my life that I can't heal. And he can fix things around me that I can't fix. And I shouldn't bear the burden of that Messiah complex. And then he goes on to say something more than that. He uses an illustration. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He says, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah because he has the bride. The title of Jesus is he's the bridegroom and he's the bridegroom because the bridegroom's got the bride. He's the one standing at center stage and I'm off here to the left hearing the bridegroom's voice as he sings over his bride that's coming down to marry him in a eternal union. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I don't have that. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He says, this brings me great joy. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, you think you're bringing concern to me. You think I'm going to join in your fear. Far from it. Your announcement increases my joy in God because I've told you, and I'll say it again. I'm not the Christ. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And he's the Christ. And he's the one I'm seeking to magnify. And I want... The most behind the scenes place to give him the most glory he is deserving of and worthy of. I stand and hear him. He says this joy is my, is now complete. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. That's kind of the focus and the point of his whole life. He must increase. And what he means is that the fame of Jesus must increase. And his reputation, the fame of John the Baptist, which he was a famous guy, lots of people were following him, happens all the time. But the fame of John the Baptist, he's saying, it must decrease. And you can't have competing agendas there. Okay, God, increase my fame and I'll increase your fame at the same time. It doesn't work that way. As our reputation and our fame decreases, his fame and his reputation are increased. And he says, that's the purpose of my life. That's what I want to live to do. That's really the purpose of every groomsman, every best man, is to exalt the groom and to oversee the behind the scenes things at a wedding. If you've ever been a best man or a groomsman, if you're, if the groom was smart, he sat you down like my brother did and said, I need your help. I'm enlisting you. You have a place of honor, but your place of honor is not central. It's significant, but it's not central. And it's over here to the side and it's behind the scenes, but I need your help. And it's an honoring and an honorable position, but it is ultimately behind the scenes and it's meant to honor the bride and honor the groom. The better job a best man does at at a wedding, the more the groom gets highlighted and the bride gets highlighted. And there's something freeing and joyful about that kind of role and that kind of ministry And many of you are aware of it because there are many people who serve behind the scenes here at this church. And they have discovered, sometimes surprisingly, that significance is found in becoming smaller. I mean, I'm looking at many people where significance has been found in serving and in not trying to elevate yourself or to promote yourself but in actually becoming smaller and behind the scenes jesus says we'd be blessed if we become that way if we have that kind of mindset when he wrapped the towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples feet and they're shocked like what are you doing It's like John the Baptist in the water when Jesus says, I'm coming to be baptized by you. And John the Baptist takes a step back publicly and says, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to be baptized by me? And he does it to show that he's uniting himself with sinners. And significance is found in decreasing, not increasing our fame. So I think that John the Baptist is saying the same thing that Paul has said, that from God are all things. Through God are all things and to God, ultimately to His praise, to His honor, to His glory are all things. So, Jesus is unique in His priority or His preeminence, you could say. But look how He's also unique. He's unique in His power and His ability. He can do things that John the Baptist can never do. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So note the contrast. There is one who is above, and this one who is above is above not a few things, but he is above all things. He's above every preacher. He's above every prophet. He's above every revelation. 
He's above every desire. He's above every dream. He's above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. In other words, John the Baptist's message is earthly. The Spirit came upon him. He spoke things that the Spirit gave, but it was imperfect and incomplete because he is of the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. You and I speak in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Did you see those words? Above, above, above. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So Jesus is a first-hand account, a primary source of what God is like. If we want to know what the Father is like, John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, say, you, you look at Jesus, because Jesus is the first-hand account. He's the primary source. He's not secondary. John the Baptist, secondary. Jesus, primary. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. Jesus walked around saying, I don't do anything except what I see my Father doing. And I don't speak anything unless, except what I hear him saying. And yet no one receives his testimony. This is actually a qualification of the Messiah. Because there are many quasi and false messiahs and false prophets whose testimony is received and received to this day. And they gain a following to themselves without any call to abandon sin and live only for the glory of Jesus. The Messiah's testimony that he utters, no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So there are some who do receive his testimony and that his testimony is true. It's not mixed with error. It's not a confusing message. It doesn't come from above up. It comes from uh, from the ground up. It comes from above down. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God For he, and that's the context is the Father, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So so Jesus has an ability to communicate the attributes of God in a way that no prophet ever could. John the Baptist is is an extension of all the prophets of the Old Testament. There was 400 years of silence and John the Baptist comes on the scene and he begins to communicate the attributes and the glories of God and people start repenting. All imperfectly, though, because only through Jesus is the Father made known. That's what chapter 1, verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we saw that Jesus is the one who is at the Father's side, revealing, revealing the attributes of God. John the Baptist knew this would happen. He said, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God told John the Baptist, Whoever you see the Spirit settle on and to remain on, this is the Messiah. This is the one. And this is exactly what it says in chapter 3. That he has... He has been given the Spirit without measure. A limitless anointing, a limitless remaining of the Holy Spirit, proving that He is the Messiah. So how is John's baptism different than Jesus' baptism that He gives to us by baptizing us with the Holy Spirit? It's a unique thing that Jesus does. He inaugurates it in Acts chapter 2. 
Well, it's different in several ways. John the Baptist is created in time. He has a starting point. Jesus is eternally one with the Spirit as the eternal Son, never having a starting point in time. Where John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, which is a pretty amazing thought, Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit, sinlessly. Where John is limited in his empowering of the Spirit, like all the prophets of old, Jesus has a limitless anointing of power from the Holy Spirit and utters the words of God because of it. Where John pronounces this lamb takes away the sin of the world, look to him, look to that lamb. Jesus says, I'm the lamb. Look to me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Where Jesus says, I'm not the way. And where John says, I'm not the way. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the life. Jesus says, I am. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been hoping for. I'm the one who ushers in the kingdom because I'm the king. And the king ushers in the kingdom. So how do you know that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Or how do you know that you've received of the Spirit that Jesus gives uniquely, which is different than how John's baptism worked and operated? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Somebody who has received of the Spirit of Jesus comes to the light. The problem is not that people don't see the light. That's very clear here in this passage. It's not that they don't see the light. It's that they love the darkness and they hate the light. Look at the words. People loved the darkness. Verse 20. They hate the light. So what's got to happen here is that there's got to be a change in loves and a change in hates. And that's what the Holy Spirit does that Jesus pours out on a people. People who once loved the darkness suddenly begin to hate the darkness. And people who once loved sin start to hate sin. You hate what you once loved and you love what you once hated. You had no regard for Christ and now you do. You had a regard and a love and a cherishing of sin and suddenly you do not. This is the effects of the one who pours out his spirit because he has the spirit without measure. He has an ability that John never had. So maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know again for sure that I'm a Christian? I might encourage you to consider if you are married or you're in a relationship, you could at least relate to this. How do you know that you're married? If you were to ask, Rob, how do you know that you're married? I, I would not go to my filing cabinet and find the certificate of marriage. And I wouldn't go to the pictures that are on my walls. I love the pictures that are on my walls, don't get me wrong, and I love the certifications and things like that. But I'm married, and I know that I'm married because I have a living relationship of hope and trust in a person. 
And I, I wake up in the morning and she's there and I go to sleep at night and she's there. And throughout the day, we're in a relationship together and I'm talking with her and she's talking with me and I'm trusting myself to her and she's entrusting herself to me. And there's a living hope, one with each other. And that's how you know that you're married. And similarly, that's how you know that you're married to Jesus. There's this living hope, this living trust. Events are wonderful. My marriage was a wonderful event, and I've had wonderful events with my wife. But it's not the necessary substance of assurance regarding my knowing I'm married to my wife. Lastly, Jesus has a unique position before God. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What John says is that there's a unique position that Jesus has before God in verse 35. That unique position is that the Father loves the Son. That's specific. That's not general. He's not throwing words away. He's not just tossing out ideas about how the Father feels about the Son over and over again. The testament of the Bible is that the Father loves the Son. The Son is His beloved. He says, listen to Him. Focus on Him because He is my beloved Son. I love Him supremely above all others. There is no greater love that I have in my heart than my love for the Son. And many people today struggle with the idea that God could love His Son more than He loves us. And we've got to be the center. We've got to be primary. And it's okay for the Father to love the Son, but it's not okay for the Father to love the Son more than He loves me. I've got to be central. I've got to be supreme. I've got to be the first place in the Father's heart. I've got to be preeminent. Where Colossians says that Jesus is preeminent, I want to mark that out of God's heart and say, no, God, I've got to be first. I've got to be preeminent. I've got to be the priority of your heart. I've got to be the first affection on your mind. I can't be second. Otherwise, I don't understand the wrath of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And there is much controversy these days about the wrath of God. The blogosphere lit up yesterday about the wrath of God. Twitter trends soared about the idea of the wrath of God. And it has everything to do with the idea of God's anger against sin. How can God feel a zealous anger against sin in the way that verse 36 describes it? The wrath of God remains on those who do not see life like Jesus warned Nicodemus that you can't even see the kingdom of God without grace. How can the wrath of God remain on somebody forever? The editor of a book that's coming out in about a month, and I haven't read the book, I don't know the contents of the book, so I should be very careful. But the editors can be quoted as saying that this, this new book is arguing that a loving God would never sentence human souls to eternal suffering by a pretty prominent pastor that is putting a book out that's arguing against that idea that a loving God would ever sentence human souls to eternal suffering. 
and in a video I watched several times, the question is posed, what kind of a God is it that we would need to be rescued from? This is not a new question. I mean, it, everything on Twitter, oh, it's, everything's so new. No, it's not a new question because people have asked for many years, doesn't this idea of the wrath of God tarnish the love of God? We understand God is love. We understand that God is loving, but we don't understand how wrath fits into a loving God. How do those things coordinate for crying out loud? And it seems that scripture just seems to say it in one breath. The father loves, but the wrath of God remains. You've got a God loving and you've got a God that pours out wrath on everybody who is not in the son. Well, I think the answer is right there in verse 35. It's plain as day right in front of us. The Father's love is a love that is supreme. It's primary. It's not second place. It's not second order. He has given all things into his hand. That includes the highest affection of the Father's heart is the Son. You will not usurp Jesus from the Father's heart. If you try, the wrath of God will remain on you forever. If you try to remove Jesus from the primary place of the Father's affection and insert your place yourself there and, and dismiss Jesus and his lordship and abandon his supremacy, you will incur judgment on yourself. Many people struggle with this because they have been taught like the song goes that God loves people more than anything. That wouldn't be the, a wrong song if, if you mean by singing that song that God loves people more than anything else he's created. That would be right to say that. But if your idea is that God loves people more than his own glory, more than his own son, that Jesus has to love me more than he loves his father, that's wrong. Listen, no father has ever loved a son like this love. This is of pure love, holy love, eternal love. God is love. And he has eternally loved the son and eternally felt affection for the son. You have never been loved as a son by an earthly father the way that the father loves the son. And it could be, you could be a great dad in here. I'm not dismissing you as a dad. You've never loved your son or your daughter the way the Father loves this Son. Oh, how He loves Him. Oh, how He loves us. Oh, oh, how He loves His Son. And no groom, you ever felt jilted and rejected by somebody? You ever pursue somebody for their affection and they dismiss you? Have you ever bent your knee and offered your hand to somebody or Proposed to somebody and they stepped back and said no and felt the crushing blow of rejection. No groom has ever been rejected like this son. So the father has an intense eternal love for the son and the son has been rejected by us. He bent his knee down and he has bent his knee down to us in love and proposed an eternal relationship with us. And we've said no to that offer. We have spurned his advances and we have jilted him and left him at the altar. And there's never been a father 
that has been more angry at his son that he has ever been jilted like this son and expressed and felt anger in his heart, a righteous anger and not a vengeful one because of his pureness and because of the purity of the offer in the holiness and the beauty of the son that is unlike any other. We've got to have a concept like John has that the wrath of God is not the opposite of the love of God. This goes away when we think of these things as opposite and detached from each other. But the wrath of God is the expression of and the upholding of God's love to those who are opposed to the supreme object of his love, of his love in Jesus. So he's, he's opposed to us as we reject Jesus, the object of his love. And as we come to Jesus, the object of his love, who he's granted authority over all things, we experience life forever. As we look to Jesus and come to Jesus and say, you are the supreme object of the Father, and by virtue of your supremacy and your preeminence and your beauty and your holiness, I come to you in faith and I'm received by you in faith. You have eternal life. Everlasting life, everlasting joy by virtue of the Father's love for the Son. Not by virtue of your love for the Son. And there's a huge difference between those two things. Well, am I loved? Yes, you're loved. Am I significant? Yes, you are significant. Your soul is eternal. It's everlasting. It never goes away once it's put into creation by God. And the Father so loved the world, John 3 says, that He gave His Son. And the Son so loves His Father that He would willingly die to uphold the righteousness of God because the Father passed over former sins for history and for years and hundreds of years. The Father passed over sins and the Son willingly comes to die to uphold the righteous name of His Father. So it does make sense if we understand the supreme place that God's glory has in his heart and how we've spurned it in love with ourselves and in love with the world and incurred the curse of God and the judgment of God that we need to be freed from or it will remain on us. And there's no indication in the text that's ever lifted after 100 or 200 or 300 years. No, it just seems to remain. And that's exactly what the rest of Scripture teaches. God's wrath never goes away because people stay in a state of frozen unrepentance and hatred towards God. want nothing to do with them. So what difference does this make? How does this give us hope? Well, you can say this morning, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have everlasting life, according to verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever, whoever, Regardless of your past, regardless of your history, regardless of how much you have messed up, whoever believes in the Son has it. What do you have? You have eternal life. You have eternal life in Him. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So note those words. Believe means obey. Believe means I submit myself in surrendered obedience to the Lordship of Jesus. It doesn't mean I just believe He exists. I surrender and submit my life to Him. But if you've done that, you should know that you are loved in a unique and a specific way by God. He sees you in the Son and He calls you daughter. He calls you son. 
And you are loved supremely, not not over Christ, but you are loved in a unique way through his love for his son who takes first place in his heart. And if you're in him, you are uniquely loved by God. And you can say with the apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ who died on the cross for my sins to remove the punishment of God from me and the wrath of God that I deserve. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In other words, a a different life than I could ever experience or create on my own has been given to me by grace. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you are sent in the same way that John the Baptist was sent out baptizing. We are commanded to go And make disciples of all nations. This is how we end misery and suffering. It's not that we don't engage ourselves in mercy ministries and things like that. It's just that we have a higher mercy. We have a greater compassion than something that happens in time and and for a short while. We want to end eternal suffering and we want to end eternal misery. And the way that happens is by making disciples of all nations and then baptizing them. Much like John says that Jesus' disciples baptized, that we are called to go out and preach and proclaim and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that we can about Jesus. But if you're not in Christ, you need to hear that the wrath of God remains on you. You've tried to be the Christ yourself. You've tried to work out scenarios in your life where you're the Messiah and you're the answer to your problem. And you are not the Christ. You are not the Messiah and you can't save yourself. And because you've jilted the Messiah at the altar, the Father's wrath remains on you. The curse of sin is over you and the inability to honor and thank God is in you. And you need to come to Jesus and believe in him by faith alone. You need to look up and out at the Christ who is Jesus, who died on the cross for sinners just like you and just like me. And is received by faith alone. And for those who receive him by faith alone, you're united eternally with Jesus. And you're united eternally with the Father and loved by God forever. And you need to hear Jesus say to you today, come to me. With nail-scarred hands, he says, I will receive you right now and I will receive you today. And the wrath of God will be lifted off of you instantly. Listen, that happens Instantly, justification, which is what that means, the wrath of God being quenched instantly from us, happens in a moment. Salvation happens in, in, a, in a second when somebody puts their faith and they trust in Jesus and they heed the words that he says, come to me and I'll never cast you out. I'll never cast you out if you come to me in faith. But it doesn't mean that it's a prosperity that is certain in my coming to Jesus that will make my life better. It did not happen for John the Baptist and it will not happen for you and me. The end of the story of John the Baptist is that he got his head lopped off. He was beheaded and it ended up on a platter for dinner guests because the king who he was speaking against, his girlfriend, which was his brother's wife, encouraged his daughter, her daughter to ask for it 
and they got it. So it doesn't mean that suffering won't come our way. It doesn't mean that persecution won't come our way. Far from it. Actually, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But you take up your cross and you follow me. And that's what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. That's what it means to come to Jesus. It means that I will embrace hatred by anybody and everybody to experience life on the inside and to follow this king and this father who loves me eternally. And it doesn't matter if I get hated by all for Jesus' namesake, which Jesus said you will be. You'll be hated by all for my namesake. And it doesn't mean that I won't lose my head if I follow Jesus, but it means that not a hair of my head will perish. Not a single one. Not a single one of your hair will perish. They could lop your head off, but your hair won't perish. You will not perish. You'll be with Christ forever. By your endurance of faith, you will gain your lives, Jesus said. Let's just take a moment, if we can, and let's just commit a a moment to the Lord here in prayer. This is our closing. This is how we're going to close. I believe there's some today that you need to believe all over again God's amazing love for you is not rooted in you. And you've struggled with how in the world could a, a God love me given my sin and given my circumstances and how much I've blown it in my life. And you need to know that God doesn't love you because you've somehow cleaned yourself up now and you're living a moral and a righteous life now. You might be. You, you might have a, a complete change because of Christ. There, there might be a change that's enacted. But that's not the root of His love for you. The Father loves you because you are in the Son. And by grace, He has united you to Him. And oh, how He enjoys you. And oh, how He delights in you. His song for you is not supreme But it's real and true. And it's the song that he sings over his son and the song that he sings over all those united to his son. Receive God's love. Believe it this morning. And there are others who you're wondering about Jesus and should I follow him in yielded obedience to him? Should I follow him and entrust my life to him I believe the Lord is just saying come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest you've tried to be the Messiah for yourself you've tried to be the Christ maybe you've tried to be the Messiah to other people how's that working for you can I just appeal to you that that's that's just a dead end road that's a bankrupt account Jesus says, you'll be loved forever if you follow me. If you reach out your hand of faith and you take hold of my hand, you'll be united to me forever and loved eternally. Quit searching and quit looking for every other man, boy, girl, job, career, title to say, you matter and I love you and look to the sun. 
and you'll find it forever. Just take a moment and commit that to Him. Father, thank you that you're mighty to save. Mighty to save. You've saved us and you're saving others. You've put us on your mission. Help us to live that out, we pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.